The Home Show with Sinead Ryan on News Talk. Hello and you're very welcome along to the latest episode of The Home Show podcast. I'm your host Sinead Ryan. Coming up this episode. Living in a historic home, is it a lordly life or a labour of love? Are house pets only suitable for certain homes and apartments? Pete the Vet will be here to chat cats and dogs. 30 years of the green building. We rediscover Dublin's best kept secret. And Nevemar will be telling us how to achieve quiet luxury without the luxury budget. If you'd like to get involved in our podcast, you can email us during the week at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. You'll find me over on Instagram or on Twitter at Sinead Ryan 100. And if you miss any of the items or indeed any of the shows, you can listen back uh, to the show and all of our podcasts on newstalk.com or on the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. Now, in my life, I have owned a dog, two cats, a hamster and a goldfish. Uh, And all, except one cat, lived inside the four walls of the house all of their lives. I I don't know, there's something about an outdoor kennel or sticking a flap in a door and shunting animals out that I just, I don't like. I feel sorry for them. But it is how many people do keep pets. And I think for a lot of people who live in the country, it's the only way that they will keep pets uh, around the place. But if you live in an apartment, for instance, and you're allowed a pet, well, then surely they are de facto inside animals. Well, Pete the Vet, Pete Wedderburn, will be along later to chat about when and which pets are indoor animals. And I know a lot of people got pets during COVID. Um, they're all coping, I suppose, to different extents. But there's no doubt that they become part of the family very, very quickly. So maybe he can give us some inspo and insight. But if you have a cat, a budgie or a dog who never ventures outside, well, let me know how you deal with that 53106 if you want to text us today that'll cost you 30 cent or email at the home show at newstalk.com you're very welcome along to the show now there's undoubtedly a romance uh, with the idea of living in a historic building perhaps you fancy yourself as the lord or lady of the manor uh, or maybe you just enjoy the idea of being so intimately connected to the past but how does the reality measure up to the fantasy? Well, Emmeline Henderson is Conservation Manager with the Irish Georgian Society and joins me now. You're very welcome to the studio, Emmeline. Well, thank you, Sinead, for having me. Now, what is it like to live in a historic home? Well, I live at an 1830s historic home in Dunleary and personally, I find it a huge privilege to be a guardian of, you know, part of Ireland's architectural heritage albeit a very small part of it. And my house is not a protected structure, but it still has many really beautiful historic features and, you know, the light and the the space. It's just um, a real honour. And I'm very mindful that I'm only probably going to have that house for maybe 20 or 30 years. And it will, it's, it is a, like a national asset. It's not, it's only mine for a short time and I'm a guardian of it. So that's an interesting word, a guardian or a custodian. You don't, it is your house, but you, that sounds to me like you'd, don't allow yourself to do what you will with it. Certainly, Sinead, I'm very mindful um, of retaining all those special features that enticed me to purchase it. So like things that I would really, you know, uh, value are are very maybe ordinary things, mundane things. I mean, it could be the natural slate roof or the cast iron down pipes or the granite steps or the, you know, the line pointing. Um, they're very ordinary things, but collectively. Um, I, and I think sometimes people know they love old buildings, but they may not be able to really articulate what it is about them they like. And it's actually the accumulation of all those um, components of an historic building that collectively make it into something 
really remarkable and different to um, a contemporary standard build. Now, it's not for everybody. Uh, for lots and lots of reasons. And, you know, very often, you know, you live in Dunleary, but in other parts of, of the city and, and around the country, you can walk past maybe a crescent of um, or a terrace of Edwardian or Victorian or Georgian houses and think, oh my gosh, wouldn't it be fabulous to live there? High sash windows and ceilings and ceiling roses and cornices and granite steps. But there's lots about it, I suppose, that makes it you know, a a home for the minority, really, because you do have to take care of it and look after it. That is true. And there are challenges to being an owner of an historic property. So I think one of the things you you might know is that they are, um, they can be cold. And I suppose having a realistic expectation of what it is to live in an historic house. So you're not going to have the comfort levels you might if you've built a beautiful passive, you know, A-rated home you will um, invariably end up putting on an extra jumper rather than putting on the heating, particularly in this day and age with fuel costs being what they are. So, yeah, there are downsides to it. It's not all, yes, uh, (laughs) gracious living. It can be a little bit of chilly living as well. So so at the moment, I suppose, with energy prices so high, you're feeling it maybe more than the rest of us? Oh, I I was absolutely knocked for six. I got an energy bill of uh, 980 euros for a two-month period and that's for a 2,000 square foot home. So we're not talking about you know, a palazzo or something. It's just, you know, a nice sized home. But yeah, 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 that's a lot. Okay. so uh, apart from that, then in terms of the energy uh, usage and I suppose your home and homes like that wouldn't be suitable or indeed permitted for things like retrofitting or wall wrapping or insulation works, maybe. You're you're absolutely right, Sinead. Like so. And that is recognised by the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage. You kind of legislate for these issues, certain things that would be Um, exempted development uh, in terms of energy retrofitting your home. You can't do those to historic houses because you will alter, you know, their inherent Mm. beauty of their traditional materials. So like, as you correctly pointed out there, like invariably, it's not really an option to, you know, do an external insulation um, on a historic house. And does that mean then that even for simple things like putting up a shelf or, you know, changing the light fitting or something or or DIY that the rest of us might have a go at, you have to be extra cautious? Well, I think there is a bit of a fear, but I I wouldn't so much concur with with those things you cited there in that um, there's a lot you can do with your home. And like really, unless you happen to have, and most of us don't even who who live in old houses, unless you have some, you know, frescoes or beautiful murals in your house. I mean, you can paint the interior of your house and you can put in you know, a fit kitchen, etc. Unless you're in like, you know, the the absolutely like maybe if you're up in Henrietta Street, you might need mm, planning permission mm. for those kind of works, but not for, you know, a regular protected structure in Dublin City. OK, well, talk to me then about what is a protected structure and, and maybe the distinction between just an old house mm-hmm. and one which is determined to be a, maybe a national, I wouldn't say a national treasure, but something yeah. the state wants to protect. Yeah, so so there, you're, you're correct. There is an onus on owners of protected structures to, to keep that inherent special architectural significance. So back in 2000, the Planning Development Act uh, was enacted and as part of that, it was mandatory for all local authorities to maintain a list of protected structures. So they're selected on the basis primarily of their ar- architectural significance, but it could be other aspects such as historic significance. So there could be somebody very famous like James Joyce may have lived in the house. So that might also be why it ends up in the record of protected structures. So it's the local authority who decide that. 
And uh, you can find out if your house is a protected structure by contacting your architectural conservation officer. For many of your listeners, that might be Dublin City Council, for example. So, And they will advise you if it's a protected structure. So there are certain things you can and can't do. But the great thing is the City Council do provide a service whereby you can request as an owner of a protected structure what they call a, sorry if I sound a bit technical now, a Section 57 declaration. So they'll actually tell you what works would not and would and would not materially alter the character of your building and therefore would and would not require planning permission. But like some of the really simple things you can do, I mean, and what you can't do. So, so for instance, if it's an extension, you would have to, if it's over uh, four square metres, like if you're under 40 square metres and it's a normal home and it's not protected, but it's an old building, you can do those works. You can build an extension without planning permission. As you would with any house. Yes, yes exactly. As long as you leave Sorry. 25 square metres in the garden. Well, <laughs> the very thing, Sinead. Yeah, so, but with the protected structure, you definitely would need to apply for planning okay. permission for that. And similarly, like um, off-street car parking, deep energy retrofit, as you mentioned there, mm. like wrapping the exterior of your building. But some of the more simple things that you think you may not need planning permission for, but you would if it's protected structure, for instance, if you wanted, if you had old timber sash windows, you would have to apply for planning permission to have those replaced. And invariably, to be honest, the local authority would refuse permission for that. Yeah, nobody yeah. wants to see the aluminium windows going yeah. up on the, <laughs> on the thing. Or the very thing. Although I think, um, you know, people um, in Ireland are much more aware now of their historic built environment. And there has been, I think there's been a trend towards people who have bought in the last kind of five years historic houses uh, that have PVC windows in them. And they want to... beautiful. Some of the ones that look, I've seen some of them on the Merrion Road, for instance, yeah. uh, around the RDS. And they, they have obviously invested in apps Absolutely gorgeous. What look like traditional sash yeah. windows, but they're not. They're all Absolutely. triple glazed. Absolutely. But the care in the joinery and all yeah. that. So do you find it hard then, Emmeline, to find craftspeople, you know, if they're, or do people who, who are in these structures and want to change mm-hmm. something material? Do, are you sometimes ordered to make sure that you have an arts and crafts person available? Yeah, so so that's really important to have the right skills and expertise for the job. And it is a specialist job. And both the Irish Georgian Society, we maintain an online traditional building skills register. And it's a brilliant resource, free of charge for any members of the public to consult. And it's all arranged by category. So if you're looking for a joiner to, to fix your timber okay. windows... Uh, there's a joinery section, there's decorative plasterwork, conservators, etc. And general builders... But also the Construction Industry Federation have done great things in the last mm. five years. They've established what they called their Register of Heritage Contractors. And again, that's all publicly available on their website. Do, you, do we Are we doing enough as a state to retain and maintain those skills? Um, because I suppose as a generation leaves, yes. you know, maybe are, are we teaching new, younger people those skills? Well, it's so important what you said there. And I think there's a big push, um, particularly in the department and with the Heritage Council to promote traditional building skills. And indeed, the Irish Georgian Society, we'd be really mindful of that too. Mm. So like each year, we have a traditional building skills exhibition where we promote the idea of um, best conservation practice and the need for traditional skills. And we often tie it in with um, the Festival of Youth, Crininog, and have workshops for young people that might ignite curiosity for them in the future about this as a you know, a potential career. Mm. Okay, now insurance is another area that people who have old and historic homes find very, very challenging because a lot of insurers just don't want the business. Mm. Uh, And the reason they don't want it, I suppose, isn't because if there's a catastrophic fire and the whole thing burns down, that's one thing. But it's if something small goes wrong and trying to find the tools and the equipment and the and the talent to repair it. That mm. that seems to be the difficulty, like a leaking pipe or the roof. Yeah, 
It is. And, and we invariably, maybe once a month, we'll get calls in the Irish Georgian Society with people wanting to know where they can secure insurance for their protected structure. And like very often, companies that may have been insuring them for for decades yeah, have suddenly shifted the goalposts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I know some people have had to go to the UK to try and get yeah. that specialist there, insurance. There are actually, Sinead, though, um, uh, specialist insurance companies operating in Ireland um, and, the, and they're on the Georgian Society's website um, Irish Heritage Insurance is one of them um, and they will look at, take a very holistic approach to yeah, your building yeah. and they'll and if, seek to place it yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay now talk to me briefly just before we leave Emmeline about um, your t- you're giving a series of talks yes on uh, conserving period houses yes so uh, that's, when is that on now yeah so that's starting um, on the 5th of March it's going to be every Tuesday for 13 consecutive Tuesdays and it really is a 101 A to Z of how to understand, appreciate and critically conserve and care for your historic house. Fantastic. Where yeah. can people find out about um, that? That's on the Irish Georgian Society's website. So www.igs.ie. Emmeline Henderson, Conservation Manager with the Irish Georgian Society. Thank you very much for joining us on The Home Show. Now, we know that pets are for life and not just for Christmas, but in joining us on our life's journey, pets find themselves in a new home chosen not by them, but by us. And in some cases, a pet might spend their entire life uh, from that point within the four walls. So what bearing should your house have on the pet you choose? And can we ensure a happy environment for our furry friends? Well, Pete the Vet, Pete Wedderburn joins me now in studio. Lovely to see you again. Good morning. Good to see you. Nice to see you. Now, most domestic pets are what we'd call house pets. Mm. But to varying degrees, they live in or out of the house, I suppose, maybe depend on the type or the breed or the whatever, whether yeah. they've a cage or not. Uh, yes. Are some more suited to indoors than others? I think there are some pets that would be classically indoor pets. And the, 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 I suppose the obvious example would be um, a goldfish in a fishbowl or... Yeah, you're not going to stick that in a... Although some people might put them oh, in you the could, pond outside. Indeed. Yeah. And I, I've had goldfish which I've eventually taken outside because they've outgrown their goldfish bowl. So, you, yeah, that, that is something which happens. Are you feeding it? It's out <laughs> And um, also budgies. I mean, again, ideally perhaps budgies should be out in an aviary, but people often have bud- budgies or cage birds in the home. Mm. But the most um, common pets, really, that people have these days are dogs, cats and rabbits. And I'd like to talk about rabbits first, because they're an unexpected one, yes, perhaps. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have thought that you could keep a rabbit in the home at all. Well, one of the interesting things about rabbits is that they're um, able to use litter trays like cats. So they don't mess in the house. Ah. They hop into the litter tray and they mess in the litter tray. How do you train a rabbit to do that? They just do it almost automatically. Really? It's just an, an instinct that they have. If you provide a litter tray, they tend to use it. Uh, the only problem with rabbits is they tend to chew things as well. So you have to be very thorough about um, rabbit-proofing your house. You don't, you can't leave any cables out, you know, like trailing wires, because oh, they'll just chew them. They chomp through everything. Um, but I know there's a very special little rabbit I know called Google, who must be heading for 10 years of age now. I don't know how old Google is, but he's the most adored family pet. And he lives in the house all the time and is very, very happy. So, you know, um, sp- small pets like that can be kept indoors. Is one of the tricks, though, Pete, not to have two rabbits? Um, well, <laughs> no, well, hang on a second. That's complicated because actually you're meant to have two rabbits because they're so social and you're meant to have them neutered 
Yes. Or spayed. Um, in fact, <laughs> uterine encounters so common in female rabbits that they should all be spayed because otherwise, by the, when they get to the four or five years of age, it's very, very, very common for them to get cancer of their uterus. Okay. So all female rabbits should be spayed. Okay. I was we're thinking kind of, of digressing thing, here a little bit. <laughs> I was thinking they might end up with a house full of rabbits. You might have to move yeah, out yeah, if no, you're you not careful. Make sure all right. They don't breed. That's okay. For sure. Well, when we're talking then about dogs, um, are there specific breeds? I, I know you're probably going to say keep it small, but are there breeds mm. that are better used to not being outdoors or, or can happily live indoors? I, I actually think that most dogs probably could live indoors because it's not so much about the size, but more how active and boisterous and energetic the dog is. Um, and in any case, every dog should be taken for a walk for at least half an hour, twice mm. a day. And most dogs, or a lot of dogs, if you give them that good exercise twice a day, they'd spend a lot of their days sleeping. Yeah, they're happy and, to flop. And even yeah. like, I, I remember we had uh, somebody in, oh, a while back from the greyhound people and they were trying to rehome greyhounds. And greyhounds apparently make lovely house pets. They do. They're, they're, like, they're known as couch potatoes because <laughs> they, they, again, they love their exercise, but then they sleep all the time. They just love sleeping. Yeah. So I think as long as you're, I mean, what we all have to do is pay attention to our dog's needs. And so if, you're, if, you, if you have a dog that's used to living in the house, but having a good exercise twice a day and going out at other times for short strolls as well to, to look after mm. their, their bladder and bowels, then, you know, you'd be surprised how many could live in inside as, as, their, as their base all the time. I mean, if you think about it, not that many dogs have a back door left open so they can stroll into the garden and back again. You know, they are always under the control of humans. Mm. And, you know, that's probably what most people do. Even if they have a garden, they probably do have their dog in the house most of the time. Now, a pet that is definitely not under the control of humans, as far as I can see, is a cat. Mm. Um, they own their humans rather than the other way around. Uh, mm. I've had several uh, over my own life and um, they are very singular, somewhat stubborn. Yes. Isolationists. They're independent <laughs> individualists, aren't they? they are. That sounds yeah. better. <laughs> uh, they definitely like to do their own thing and mm. they have a very distinctive personality and mm. they can make it very clear when they do and don't like something. So we think of cats as indoor animals, but they do like nothing better than being out, particularly at night, if mine were anything to go by. Yes. I mean, again, all pet owners have an obligation to attend to the behavioural needs of their pets and all pets should be allowed to do the normal natural behaviours. In fact, that's in legislation in Ireland that you should um, provide the five freedoms for your for animals under your care. Right. And that includes, you should include the option for them to have normal natural behaviour. And so for cats, that does mean running, jumping, climbing trees, um, probably hunting uh, or chasing things. Mm. Um, these are all normal natural things that cats do. So I suppose the most easy way to achieve those aims is to allow your cat to come and go, to have an indoor-outdoor cat uh, maybe a cat flap or, or mm. let them out when they want to go out. And if so you're on. in an apartment building now, does that mean you could let it out on the balcony? Could it jump to a tree or jump to another balcony? Oh, I, I would be extremely wary about allowing a, a cat onto a balcony. Oh, because right, they, OK. They'd I, give it a go, I, I, would they? I've seen cats that have fallen off balconies right. and, and they don't land happily every time, believe right, me. Right, OK. They might um, lose eight of their nine lives if, yeah, yeah. if they do that. Okay. Um, Good, OK. So that's cats, dogs. Are all of those better to have more than one then, if that's the case? Well, yes, all pets are social creatures and enjoy company apart from golden hamsters, really, 
and golden Very hamsters. Specific. Yeah, well, <laughs> the introvert go, of the pet world. They are completely solitary. They only welcome other hamsters when they're in season and they want to mate, and then they really, really, really welcome them. <laughs> but apart from that, just leave me alone. I'm happy uh-huh. on my own space. Well, but, I know many people like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to argue with that as a lifestyle option. <laughs> yeah, but but in in, in general, okay. pet pets are uh, appreciate other company. Uh, so Especially if you're going out to work. You know, a lot of people got COVID pets and, during lockdown mm. and then they went back to work and the pets suffered. Yes, but but that's when I, when I say that, it's not quite as simple as get a friend for your dog or cat or whatever yeah. and they'll be happy. Not nearly as simple as that. You you can't just use having two dogs as an excuse to go off to work and and, and leave them to uh, it. Yeah, because they can... No. Yeah. Dogs should never really be left alone okay. for more than three hours, even if there's two of them, oh, you know. okay, okay. Because they, they do have... They, they do become Need very you. dependent on humans. I think we need to talk a little bit more about cats there. Do. And, yeah. and actually, I'd because, like you to look at, mm, in terms of cats and making your house cat friendly because Mm. I know that scratching and climbing are two key activities for any cat. Yes. So although the easy way to provide a cat's behavioural needs is to allow them outside, um, there are many people feel that cats should never be allowed outside um, because of the damage that they cause to wildlife. And in some parts of the world where wildlife is particularly vulnerable, for example, New Zealand, um, Australia and parts of North America, um, it's really um, seen as very bad form to allow your cat out at all. Mm. It's seen as like, okay. like it's a no-no, a cultural no-no. Yeah. So cats have to be kept inside all the time. Indeed, that's a law in some parts of the wow. world. Okay. Uh, in Ireland, it's very much an option. And what we know is this. We know that cats that go outside, um, they have more fulfilled lives, but they don't have as, as long lives because they're vulnerable to accidents. Mm. They're vulnerable to attack from predators, mm. even dogs, and also toxicities. Whereas cats that are kept indoors, um, they live longer, they have longer lives, but they're a little bit more prone to stress-related disease because they can't do all the climbing the things and that they want so, to do. So if you do keep a cat indoors, all this means is you have to pay particular attention to address those needs. And so what can you do then to, to help the cat Well, there's lots and lots of great ways of doing that. Okay. So for example, there's things known as cat gyms, which are ba- <laughs> <laughs> they're basically like a, a pile of, okay. of, of, of boxes up on top, on top of each other with um, shed, uh, sort of areas they can climb up to yeah. the top and uh, little hidey holes they can crawl into. So it makes the, basically you use the three-dimensional space of your room okay. in order to, to, to make it more enjoyable for the cat. And as, they sometimes are a bit obtrusive because they're like big objects that people who are very house proud might want in their mm. homes. But you can also get very nice, beautifully designed um, cat shelves. There's a particular brand called Caterpillar that was designed by, I think he was an airline engineer who mm. changed his... A designing and sort of design cat furniture. So it has that kind of smooth looking... Gosh, I think we'll have to have him on the own show <laughs> and find out all but about it, that. But these look great. They, 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 you put them on the wall and yeah. they're kind of almost seamless because you can choose colours that match your, your the walls, the colour of your walls. What, like hops around cats the place? Cats can hop up them, oh, go right okay. to the very top. And the very top then, up towards the ceiling, there's a, a basket where your cat can sit and survey their domain. And the cats love that. Okay. And you can also get cat scratching posts, super high ones that go up like five feet high, you attach to the wall. I and your cat can really scratch up and strongly recommend them. a scratching post because if you don't get one... They will do it anyway. Your furniture is their scratching 
scratching post. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They'll go wherever they can find. Yeah, and be careful getting the real Christmas tree in at Christmas time because they sometimes you'll find your cat in it and your decorations off it. They have their behavioural needs and they will they will they will express that behaviour however they can find a way of doing it. Yeah. Mm. Now, and I suppose then finally, Pete. I mean, this practice which I've heard of of declawing mm. uh, cats in particular that. That's outlawed, I hope, is it's, it? Or, it's, or is it not illegal, It's illegal in Ireland and indeed most of Europe. It still happens in the States. It's beyond me how they allow it. It's like chopping off the end of people's fingers and toes so that the nails don't grow anymore. Can you imagine? Yeah. So brutal. And it caused a lot of pain, a lot of distress. And um, I still don't understand why American vets al- allow that I, I to be acceptable. It. All right. Yeah. OK. Um, so in terms of then, if you are if you are thinking of getting a pet at your home or apartment, and a lot of apartments don't allow pets, but if you mm. are, what would you recommend people do? First of all, just just think it through fully, I suppose. I would I would do the, do the full research before committing yourself to anything. Uh, really think about it well. And all of these options that we talked about are possible but they all have their pros and cons and you need to I would really recommend that you talk to somebody else who's kept a pet like that indoors and these days with the internet it's very easy to find somebody else who's done that Oh if you're looking Uh, for a Facebook group on cats you are going to find them (laughs) no no doubt about it And so you know don't don't try and reinvent the wheel learn from other people's experiences before you commit to anything Okay all right. good advice from Pete the vet Pete Wedderburn as always Uh, and thanks a million for joining us on The Home Show Thank you Now, Temple Bar's Green Building was conceived as a demonstration of environmentally friendly construction 30 years ago this year. So what impact has it had on building in Ireland? What's its legacy? And how much easier is it to make our buildings and homes green now? Well, Tim Cooper was one of the masterminds behind the building and continues his work in a similar vein today as conservation engineering consultant. He joins me now. Tim, you're very welcome along to The Home Show. Hi, Sinead. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Now, tell us first where people can find the green building, because I suspect lots and lots of us have walked right past it lots of times. Well, it's very discreet. It's in Temple Bar. It's between Temple Lane South and Crow Street. Um, It's in the middle of a terrace on both of the elevations, so it's hard to spot. Um, It's got a retail outlet on the ground floor and it's got some very nice artwork for the entrances. Uh, one is called the Tree of Pipes, which is salvaged copper, green copper door. And mm. you can see that on Crow Street. And the other one is made by Maud Cotter. It's a collection of salvaged uh, metal in frames in the in the door. And, uh, you know, to some extent, that whole area has become a little bit more gentrified maybe than it used to be. So uh, it fits in, I think, a lot better with the surroundings now uh, than possibly, possibly it did before. What was your thinking behind it and and what was your inspiration for it? Well, it was originally an an attempt to demonstrate what could be done to reduce CO2 emissions. That was my major incentive or motive, trying to demonstrate what we could do to reduce CO2 emissions. And uh, we put together a a design of a building. In fact, it was originally supposed to have gone on the Grand Canal docks on a site belonging to Borgash. And we put all the technologies that were available at that time for reducing CO2 emissions from heat pumps, groundwater, external insulation, um, wind turbines, solar thermal, solar PV, all that technology into the design. And we applied to Brussels for support under their energy demonstration uh, program. And to our delight, we got a grant. They were approved for a grant of 500,000 Irish pounds, which today is 2 million. Wow. 
Um, but by the time we got the grant, board gosh, it sold the site. So we were wandering around then Dublin with this two million euros in our pocket, trying to persuade somebody to build a building. And the only thing they had to do was make sure it was energy efficient. But most people don't remember there was an incredible recession at that time. Mm. Nobody was building. And the only place there was any activity was in Temple Bar. And to our great delight, uh, Laura McGahey, who was the MD of Temple Bar Properties, said we could have our pick of sites in Temple Bar. And that's, uh, I went, I, she gave me a map of the, the sites to Temple Bar Properties owned in Temple Bar and asked me to take my pick. And I went around that map with a little piece of paper the size of the building we needed and that's how we spotted uh, Temple Lane. Wow. And the inspiration for it wasn't too far away. I believe it was in uh, a building in Trinity College. Well, yes, I was working in Trinity College at the time. I was what was called the Director of Buildings. I was, uh, in the words of the college, responsible for the fabric. And I joined the college way, uh, way back earlier in 76, I think it was, at the time of an energy crisis. And what happened then was the, uh, it was, there was uh, a, a war in the Middle East, as we called it then. And the oil delivery simply stopped and the electricity was turned off. And I was the only engineer on the team, the management team. And I was asked to help them run Trinity College without any electricity and without any oil. And that was the start of me collecting data because nobody actually knew what was being consumed in with any degree of um accuracy or precision. Mm, so mm. I set about measuring what the buildings were consuming. And I discovered to my great interest that some of the historic buildings were by far the most energy efficient buildings. And one of them in particular, it's called the museum building, was extremely efficient. So I did a lot of work looking at that, trying to determine why it was so efficient. And that led on. I, what I learned from that, I made use of when I was designing the green building. It's a, it's a wonderful building um, and very you know, it's got high thermal inertia, it's got natural ventilation, it's got wind-powered ventilation, It's uh, um, and that's really the basis of the green building. It mm. was, I wanted it to be a bit like a cave, cool in the summer, warm <laughs> in the winter, naturally. Indeed. And, and, you know, you're talking about things, energy efficiency, ventilation systems, you know, solar, PV. This is all really standard stuff nowadays, but that was not the case in 1994. I mean, you attest to the difficulty you had even finding somebody remotely interested in doing that. Did you have a look to the future? I mean, you, you was a kind of a prescience about, look, the planet is heading in this direction. We have to start in this way and I need to, to do a demonstration building nearly of, of what the future should look like. Well, my interest stemmed back to my days as an undergraduate when I first read Arthur Holmes's book called Principles of Physical Geology. And in that, he drew attention to climate change, which is astonishing. And I was, I was really shocked by what I read because he was predicting exactly what's happening now. And he was saying that because of the increased emissions of CO2 uh, from, resulting from the burning of fossil fuels, the climate was going to change. And that's what sort of stuck with me right throughout my professional career. And obviously, when I was in college, then looking at the buildings at the time of the energy crisis, um, I got more and more data. It's all about data, seeing what mm. was being consumed. And then I was looking at options and ways of reducing that consumption mm. and reducing associated CO2 emissions. Now, I know one of the things that had to be done for this building, because I've had a look at this, at the kind of the plan for it, and it involved a borehole, a 150 metre borehole, which is way, 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 way underground uh, to, to make sure that you were dealing with the bedrock and the temperature and all that. But I believe that from time to time, you still take the temperature 
of that bedrock. Tell me what you found. Yes, I mean, the very first thing I did is we put a borehole on the site to see could we extract groundwater and if we could, what temperature would it be? And in fact, it turned out that there was no groundwater. So instead of, I bought in the professor of engineering, Professor Simon Perry, who was incredibly helpful. And we said, right, we've got the drilling rig on site. Let's just keep drilling until we run out of drilling rods. And at 150 metres, which was reasonably deep, we ran out of drilling rods. And then I measured the temperature of the bedrock down there to see was it a useful temperature. And anything above 10 degrees would have been fine, but it was actually 12 and a half degrees, so it's slightly warmer than we expected. And then we designed a, a unique borehole thermal extraction system for pulling heat out of the underlying limestone based on that temperature of 12 and a half degrees. Uh, there was some concern amongst the geologists that if we pull, pulled su- sufficient heat out of the bedrock, it would gradually cool down. That was a bit of concern. But I then measure that temperature regularly, and for the first sort of 15 years or so, I measured it every September just before we hit the switch the heating on. Mm. And to my, again, sort of almost horror and shock, I have discovered that the temperature of the bedrock under Dublin is heating up. It's now nearly two and a half degrees hotter than it was uh, 30 years ago. And the only logical explanation I can come up with for that is climate change. So as a result of your work and indeed similar science abroad, we are now in the position where we are attempting to build every house and home and uh, commercial property like the Green Building. Do you think we are doing it fast enough, Tim? Well, the data I'm seeing, and again, I'm a numbers person, and you've heard the recent uh, announcements about how we're performing against our targets is, is very, very depressing. We're not doing it fast enough. We're not reducing consumption of fossil fuels, which is what we have to do fast enough. Um, And that's the real challenge we're facing at the moment. Mm. Um, For my sins, word has got out that I, I mean, as part of the green building, I uh, grid connected the solar PV system there. And that was the first ever grid connected solar PV system in Ireland. And that transforms the performance of solar PV. Prior to that, it was off grid. So it's got about that I know a bit about PV having worked (laughs) now for 30 years. You, you, were, you were probably the grandfather of it. And uh, that meant that, you know, effectively you became possibly the first supplier and user of solar PV all, all that time ago. What lessons can we still learn from your green building? Well, from the green building, the most important thing in, to my mind is to know exactly what you need the energy for. What, what are you consuming? Your uh, The future is going to be all electric because we won't be allowed to burn gas and mm. oil I'm fairly certain. So we need to look at the electric appliances in our buildings and see what's there. Does it need to be there? How long is it running? Is it essential? And and how much is it consuming? And more importantly, when is it consuming its power? Because with renewable energy, we can't determine when the energy is available. We have to try and match our demand to the Mm. renewable energy supply. And much like the Internet of Things, uh, I mean, the time will come, we are told by boffins in the SEAI, that a lot of this will be linked. I mean, you're going to have district heating systems and smart uh, apps that can kind of plug your, charge your car at the right time or tell your oven when to switch off and all that kind of thing. Is that going to be something that you would welcome, um, I suppose, as soon as possible? Uh, It's fundamentally important and I believe it should happen as quickly as possible. Mm. 
um, right down to controlling your cooker. Because in the modern energy-efficient house, the cooker is, uses more power than anything else. And sometimes I go into award-winning energy-efficient houses and I go into the kitchen and they have these enormously powerful cooking devices there. They need to be taken control of. They need to be managed so that they're not pulling power out of the grid when there's no wind and there's no sun. And that they mm. should be taking it out when there is surplus power or low CO2 or better, zero CO2 power available, storing it and having it available for use when the demand is there, when the need is there to cook or make your coffee or whatever. All right. Well, look, Tim, anybody that hasn't had a look at it, you can go and look, of course, at the outside of the Green Building. But also, uh, do you have a website where people can go and have a, have a look around uh, what, what you've done with it? Well, we don't have a Green Building website. I have a website myself and I use that as a contact point for people who want advice or information about um, using electricity uh, efficiently or reducing their CO2 emissions and using uh, PV efficiently. And OK, effectively. and give us the address of that. It's www.timcooper.ie. Well, that's very, very straightforward. Uh, Tim Cooper, uh, Conservation Engineering Consultant, thank you very much for coming on the show and talking to me about the 30-year-old uh, green building, which was way ahead of its time. Now, there has been a lot of talk about a concept called quiet luxury in recent times. But what exactly is it? And are the likes of you and I luxurious enough uh, or indeed rich enough to achieve it uh, without all the cash required? Well, who better to ask than our next guest, Neve Marr, uh, Creative Director with Journal.ius, back with us in studio. Neve, you're not quiet on this matter at all. <laughs> you're going to tell us how uh, to get it done. Well, look, first of all, tell us what it is. Yes, absolutely. So quiet luxury. I love this trend. A lot of people are actually calling it a movement more so than a trend. It's very common to see these movements come from fashion originally and then pop up in the home and with interior design and that's exactly what's happening. So one of the latest, it actually started um, on TikTok. So it's basically elevated elegance. So we can look back if we wanted to, to Gwyneth Paltrow. Do you remember she was in that ski trial back in 2020? That's right. People were talking about her fashion and they were talking about the quiet, luxurious nature of it. The fact that she wasn't going mad for logos, but she was wearing very expensive. Like the cashmere kind oh, of yes. roll tops. and A the, Celine the, boot. It yeah, was things like the this. Cape. And the Duchess of Sussex, actually, Megan yeah. is a bit like that on her infrequent appearances wherever. Yeah. You know, though, that the cape coats and the kind of the skinny jeans and the boots. Like, you know, this stuff costs an absolute fortune. You can almost smell Even how if expensive you can't it is. see the label. Exactly. So we're starting to see this pop up now with interior design and basically picture a Nancy Myers movie. So, I mean, it's everything. It's the holiday. It's something that's got to give. It's anything that Meryl Streep has been in or anything that Meryl Streep has worn. It's complicated. So the house in that, people will know it because it's just, you're like, wow, if you had to divorce um, you know uh, what's his name Baldwin that's the one you wanted out of that marriage you wanted that think of the house and it's complicated (laughs) so that's exactly what it is so it's the elevated basics of interior design essentially but here's the rub it's very expensive Mm. to look not expensive. So how do you master quiet luxury on an affordable budget? The Dolly Parton approach takes a lot of money to look this trashy. (laughs) Exactly. So what are we looking at then? Um, The first thing that strikes me about those type of homes is that they are really paired back. Yes. So are we back into the whole 
kind of Scandi hugger thing. Well, this is the thing. And I know I've spoken about how maximalism is taking over on this show and how actually, you know, go for the 70s look and go for the wallpaper. Disregard everything I've said, Sinead, because <laughs> this is actually about refinement when it comes to quiet luxury. Um, so decluttering is going to be your best friend here. So Clossy.co is an Irish company for all of your storage and decluttering We solutions. have them in on the show. They're yeah. amazing. And Cute I, boxes. And really, food. exactly. Yeah. It's all the boxes. It's They've got edits as well, which are really good. So the pantry edit, the everywhere edit, the stackable edit and get started guides as well. Because like I've mentioned before, decluttering can be a little bit of a oh I don't know how to do that don't know where to start so if you want to first before you get into quiet luxury just declutter entirely now thrifting it almost feels like this is a bit of an oxymoron because you know how are you going to go and tell me to go into a thrift store which is just covered in stuff and actually pick out one thing that's going to look beautiful in my home but that's the whole point about it. it's about less is more but what you pick has to be very purposeful. The one thing that you choose has to be completely purposeful. Um, So if you're thrifting, there's some really great furniture stores. Uh, The Vintage Furniture Warehouse specialises in mid-century. That's in Kilkenny. I wanted to move a little bit away from Dublin. Gaff Shop, which is an online gaff interiors. I'm sure you've got them on the show. That's a super store, actually, the gaff interiors. And we have had them on the show. Um, Like, they're they're not a mishmash of pieces. They take in a few pieces, but every single one is, is stellar. So curated as well. And that really plays in to Quiet Luxury being incredibly curated. And also Trash to Treasure, I wanted to mention, you can find them on Facebook and that's in Waterford as well. So thrifting is really important and keeping a mindful approach to what you thrift, getting key pieces is good for Quiet Luxury as well. Another thing that I want to talk about is the colour palette of Mm. Quiet Luxury. Now we've spoken about white on white and how much that can be very brash and very, you know, just a bit harsh when it comes to creating a calm space. But I am going to talk about neutral tones because the quiet luxury style is all about neutral palettes. It is what you think about. It's like those kind of creams and honey tones yes. and beige sands. I mean, I, look, I love it. We all do. Mm. You love the look. But I'm just wondering, does it leave it that look very bland then as well this is it it's about how many shades of white can there be so followers of this trend generally avoid bright colours and bold prints and and a lot of accessories like I mentioned but the the vibe is more interesting than minimalism so you can get interesting tones of white actually one of them that I love is white number six by Lick that's one of how many whites that you can get Um, so lick.co.eu you'll find some nice ones there it's a soft white but it has warm pink undertones Mm. so this really promises to transform the room into a peaceful haven. Yeah. So don't actually, go stark white. That undercoat is so important. Exactly. If you can get that right and if you're looking for that kind of warm white look, those yeah. kind of red pinky under undercoat Coat, it look white, but but Absolutely. it has that tone in it. You can even I've got a color subtle by color trend, and it's it's a gray, but it's a very light warm yeah. gray. So it's it's using these neutral palettes, but using them in a in a very purposeful way, and also kind of pairing them up with each other really contributes to it as well. Um, so the okay. tone of things is very important is when you're trying to get quite very luxury. important. So your walls are a kind of a platform yes. for maybe your art. Is that is that that look there? Your your walls aren't taking over; they're not passionate 
patterned, they're not painted in different colours. No, exactly. It's the backdrop. And this moves me on to the next thing. If you want to achieve quiet luxury, investment features is a very key thing that you'll need to think about. So it makes a huge difference, but it won't break the bank. So we're going back to the elevated basics. What is a door? It's a basic. Everybody has them. But how do you elevate a door? This is what will turn it into somebody walking into your home and going, oh, that's a really nice door, to being, oh, look at that door. Um, Ignoring it completely because you've never changed the door and you still have the old wood panel one from 20 years ago. This is actually something that me and my husband are doing next. We're we're looking at our doors and we're looking at an Irish company called Porta, which focuses on premium quality steel doors. Now, these are ones, they are an investment, but at the same time, it's what makes the difference. That's Neve's way of saying they're really expensive. (laughs) (laughs) But these are the black. Actually, they've become so popular now as between rooms. Yes. So if you have, say, a kitchen leading into a sitting room, you want something to close it off, but you don't want it to be closed off. No. So you're talking about just to kind of draw a word picture for listeners. It's the kind, says she with her hands. (laughs) Um, Black kind of or or a kind of a charcoal steel with very thin black um, crosses or frames in them exactly. and clear, clear, thin glass. Yes, that's exactly the look. And on Porsche, they've got a lot of different edits, um, but you can go on and they actually help you from design through to configuration and also installation. So it's a really good way. Um, but investment features like doors and shutters on your homes as well. You know, it is an investment, but at the same time, it's going to bring you into that quiet luxury space, which is what you want to be. Yeah. And actually, if you look at their website and indeed others, you'll see exactly the difference that a door can make because I would be worried that that wouldn't fit in like you have to change all the doors or none of the doors but actually if you're using it as a room divider in that sense it really doesn't matter. It's great for space as well they do sliding doors as well so if you don't have the right walls to have a pocket door for example but you want to save space sliding doors as opposed to the open and shut Um, but you see them all over the Nancy Myers movies those kind of steel doors yes they're an investment but it will elevate you all the way up. And what I like about those doors is you can get beveled glass you're not actually looking looking at the mess in the kitchen while you're sitting oh, yeah. in the sitting room. Absolutely. You get that Art Deco shimmer throughout it on some of them. You exactly. Know. But, but you're looking at really fine finishes there, Neve. though. Isn't that important? Like the handles and the and the bolts. and Exactly. And that's the thing. It's the features that actually, it's not about screaming like, I'm wearing a Gucci jumper. It's the paired back elements yeah. which make the quiet luxury. Yeah. So Less I mean, is more is really the message here. Okay. Is more, exactly. Fantastic. All right. So it's like whispering your luxury. You're, you're whispering it. And, th- and then the final thing that I will say is just uh, artwork. DIY projects will be your best friend when it comes to artwork because bigger is better when it comes to art on the walls in quiet luxury. You'll see these in a lot of celebrity homes. You know, art is so expensive and they really do showcase that. But that's not to say that you can't achieve that yourself. So if mm. you wanted to get art on the walls, now I am by no means an artist and I will not tell anybody to go spray painting their house. But if you simply Google how to DIY your own artwork, there's loads of ways in which you can achieve Hold on, that. are you talking about buying a poster and framing it? You're, are, or are you talking about I'm talking about, yeah, like basically just painting your own artwork and putting it on the walls. Who's to say that you can't do that? Because you're looking at thousands and thousands for a large scale piece of artwork. I do know somebody who is definitely not an artist and would never describe themselves as such. But they ran to the end of their budget and they had no more money when they were doing their house. They bought a large blank canvas. Paint it yourself. 
and they just splashed colours on it and oh. every person who walks it I don't think he's ever told anybody I did that myself. Well that's it and actually <laughs> They all think it's yeah. this amazing modern art piece standing on the but wall. that's it and it's very easy to do and actually um, French style gallery walls just finally on the on the uh, quiet luxury French style gallery walls uh, like a salon style which is lots of different frames hanging mm. um, although it sounds a little bit cluttered gallery if it's wall. in one yeah. space it's yeah. really bodes into that and you can thrift like honestly artwork in thrift stores is really, really good. And if you have, and really if you have that theme running through, if you have, say, those black steel doors and you oh. just use black thin frames, Absolutely. the whole thing looks looks pulled together. Yeah. All right. DIY that's, the artwork. I'll right. That's Arne uh, Mar being very loud about quiet luxury. <laughs> All right. Quiet luxury on a budget, if that isn't an oxymoron. Thank you so much, mm. Neve, once again, Creative Director with Journal.ie for coming in. And that's all we have time for on the latest episode of the Home Show podcast. I hope you enjoyed our selection of guests and topics this week. But if you have one you'd like to suggest or a guest you'd like us to have in, why not get in touch with us? Email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com or pop over to me on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100. I know lots of you like to do that after listening to the pod. Uh, don't forget to check out any of our other podcasts. All editions are up on the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud or you'll find them on newstalk.com or indeed anywhere you get your pods. Just search for The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. Thanks to producer Aidan McKelvey this week. Stephen McLoon was on sound and we'll see you all next time. The Home Show with Sinead Ryan Saturday morning at 8 on News Talk